Let me invite you to open up in your Bibles to the book of Ruth this morning. We're going to, to be starting in chapter 1, verse 1. If you can remember back a, a few weeks, the, the week I, I and Katie and our kids were out with, with COVID, uh, Pastor Pete and Bethany and Chris and Debbie and Brian helped lead us through a, a reading of the book of Ruth. But that was also intended uh, to help set the stage so that we could go back through and, and look in finer detail at, at each piece of that story. And as we go back through this book, as we spend most of our summer in these four chapters, I really want it to challenge us in some ways. I want to I wanna give it permission to sort of reform or reframe our paradigm of family. Because I think the book of Ruth has some powerful things to say about how God works, about the way he, he sets people together in a family. But I think it pushes against some of our maybe preconceived ideas about family. And so I want, I want us to kind of have that in mind as we start in to Ruth this morning. And in, in some ways, I think Ruth won these first five verses, which are really just sort of setting the historical backdrop for this book, um, are, are both pertinent and also sort of a troubling Father's Day passage. And you'll see what I mean. There, there's not a lot of good news as we start the book of Ruth. But as we finish this morning, I also want to think about why that might be good news to us in the way that we, we think about who we are and where we experience belonging. During the, the month of May, the month of June, we are kind of given as a culture to celebrating family in particular ways. And, and through the holiday of Mother's Day a month ago and through celebrating Father's Day today. All right, we, we take a weekend to, to notice and to appreciate uh, the place of mothers and fathers in our lives. And that might be biological mothers and fathers. That might be others who have stood with us like a mother or father, and supported us in, in important seasons of our lives. We celebrate right, the, the stability that having a loving family provides us with. And that's certainly something to be celebrated. But I also want us to, to keep in mind that when we come to holidays like Mother's and Father's Day, there is a, a remarkably large percentage of, of, of individuals and families that, that haven't sort of experienced the, the put-together, perfect picture of, of, of a nuclear family, the way that, that greeting cards or, or popular depictions of family might have us envision. The, sources we, uh, the, the family we grew up in might have been a source of great blessing to us. It may have also been uh, a source of, of hardship, of difficulty. Some of you have suffered through strained relationships with your parents or with your siblings. Some of you have experienced the pain of, of losing parents to illness and death. Not everyone has the, the benefit of having two parents in their, in their home throughout their formative years. I think as Lynn uh, has shared with us this morning, right, we... 
we recognize that there are pressures and challenges facing young mothers, right? And we want to, to both invite them to, to choose life and to see what God has, has done, the miracle of life. But to do that, we also have to have a picture of family that's big enough to include them and to welcome them and to affirm that, that God has, has a different view of family than, than just the one that, that's sort of two parents in place in, in, a, in a tightly knit family because not, not all of us have access to that. I was reading through a little bit about the history of Father's Day in the United States, and I found it interesting to note that the, the woman sort of responsible for, for bringing Father's Day celebrations uh, into popularity at the turn of the 20th century was a woman named Sonora Dodd. And she actually was raised in a single-parent household. Her father raised her and her five siblings uh, largely on his own after their mother died in childbirth. And it was, it was in the decades following the Civil War. And so she uh, called people to, to celebrate and honor their fathers, recognizing that, that Father's Day was a time to celebrate not just, uh, again, the, the sort of picture-perfect family, but a way to honor families that were held together through difficult times, through seasons of struggle and adversity. So I want us to keep in mind that there's no sort of one picture of what a family looks like, one particular arrangement of, of how family happens. Because I think we see that the scriptures presenting us with a, a bigger vision, a more robust vision of what parents and brothers and sisters and family are, are, are sort of intended to look like within the people of God. Right? We long to have a family that's big enough to stand with us and to surround us no matter what life sends our way. And so that, that calls again for this more expansive vision of, of what it means to belong. Wanted to, to pull up here one of the core values that we've been talking a lot about the past year. I don't know, can you jump, there we go, jump the slide forward. As a, as a church, we've spent some time trying to identify four things that we feel like we really want to say. This is who we, we are. This is who we want to continue to be. These are places we want to continue to grow. And one of those is the value of belonging. And behind that stands this idea that we belong to a Father God, a Heavenly Father. But because we belong to Him, we also belong to this family that He is creating and calling together. And that's a, that's a bigger sense of family. It's a more diverse sense of family. It's an intergenerational sense of family. And it, and it calls us and challenges us to think about the family God is building. We also want to belong to that, but we also need to, to get on board with, with how he thinks about these things. And so this morning, as we're beginning to make our way into what Ruth has to say, I want us to, to sort of keep this theme of belonging, this value of, of belonging central, to underscore what, what it looks like to belong to God and his, his unrelenting, his steadfast love and desire to have a people that belong to him. And I think we, we need to keep that front and center because in this story we'll see we, we need a horizon line to keep our eyes on because the story goes all over the place. There are, there are points in this story, and in particular here at the beginning of this story, 
where there's not much evidence of a family to belong to, where there's not much evidence of stability or support or hope. In fact, there's quite a bit of evidence to the contrary. There's, there are times both in this story but also in the story of our lives where we'll feel like our sense of belonging is coming undone. Our sense of what it means to, to have a family is, is being stretched or torn apart. So I want us to hear where Ruth begins because I want us to also see how God can, can work and access us even in, in places and conditions where it is near impossible for a family to form and flourish. And yet God is there with us. So let me pray for us as we open up to Ruth 1, verse 1. Lord, we are grateful that the story of Scripture is one of creating a people, calling them to belong to you. And then even as we read this, this sort of cycle of, of that sense of, of belonging being undone, of us losing our way, losing our sense of identity and who we belong to, that again and again you, you go to work to recover and to redeem and to restore us. Lord, your word says that you set the lonely in families, that you are a father to the fatherless. But give us a deeper understanding of how you do those things. May the words of my mouth, Lord, as I preach this morning, may the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. So if you've got Ruth one open and you're in a in a bible where you're you're sort of in context right you've got books before and books behind i think it's it's important for us to notice where ruth appears in in the layout of scripture in the canon of scripture and what comes before it and what comes after it because in many ways i think in our bibles it's been placed there on purpose as a kind of bridge book it's meant to bridge two very distinct histories or periods of time in the life of, of Israel, in the life of God's people. And you'll notice that just before the book of Ruth is the book of Judges. And just after the book of Ruth comes First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. So, so Judges is this period when, when the, the Israelites are settling into the land, and it's actually a pretty turbulent time in their history. And then, and then first and second Samuel, first and second Kings are, are the emergence of these new kingdoms, these new monarchies, and really a, a new kind of stability in the land, at least for a time. And Ruth is put right in the middle. It's the story that connects those two. So if you look backward from Ruth, I want us to think what comes before this morning. As we go through the book, we'll start to look ahead at what comes after Ruth. But if you look before, you have books first like Exodus and Deuteronomy. And those are, are chapters in the story of Scripture, books in the story of Scripture, that are all about God calling together a people, rescuing a people, redeeming a people. He's calling them up out of Egypt, right, bringing them into the wilderness, meeting with them at Sinai, forming a, a covenant with them there. And God saying, you are to be my treasured possession. Out of all the peoples of the earth, I desire to, to know you in a special way. And he, he makes covenant with them. 
He leads them right in a pillar of cloud and fire through the wilderness and eventually delivers them into the land of Canaan to give them this new home. But following those books, we get uh, the book of Judges. And Judges is, is really, you know, that, that idea of them entering the land and, and being the people of God and keeping to his covenant. We watch through the book of Judges that slowly unraveling. We see in the book of Judges the people of God having difficulty living out their sense of belonging to God. In fact, so, so much of the, the covenant promises described in, in places like Deuteronomy fall apart in the period of Judges. And so we see enemies at the borders of, of Israel attacking them throughout the book of Judges. We see divisions from within the people of Israel. There are all these sort of tribal uh, divisions and warfare taking place. We see idolatry in the book of Judges. We see violence of, of a family against family and even within families taking place in the book of Judges. So much so that by the last verse in the book of Judges, the last verse before we get to Ruth, reads this way, and I've, I've got it up here on the screen. Judges 21, 25. In those days, Israel had no king. And so everyone did as they saw fit. Right? If, if before all that, God called together this group of people to be cohesive, to belong to each other, to have one sort of formative identity. By the end of the book of Judges, we see anarchy. We see everyone doing their own thing. Everyone not belonging to God, but rather belonging to themselves. Doing as they saw fit. And so there, there really is very little remnant of this idea of being a covenant family. And then we get to Ruth 1, verse 1. And it points us sort of right back into that context. Ruth 1, verse 1 says, In the days when the judges ruled, right, in a time when everyone was doing as they saw fit, there was a famine in the land. To be living in, in Israel at this point in history was, was to live and to expect instability. Right? The, the one constant to your life was inconstancy, was disruption. And so before we get out of even verse 1 in, in Ruth 1.1, 1, 1, we find that in addition to the political turmoil and, and the anarchy of that time, we now have a, a physical problem. We have famine in the land. And so the people had uh, another layer of stress to contend with. And I want you to try to imagine what it would have been like to live under those conditions. Right? It, it, it would be like living in a war-torn country today. You're not sure if you're safe. You're not sure if you will have enough to eat. Your sense of of family and safety is, is compromised. Your sense of God's presence, God's nearness, God's goodness would come under stress and doubt as well. Maybe you've experienced not 
not those kind of conditions, but maybe you have experienced chapters and times in your own life, your own family's history, when, when the layers of stress begin to compound, when you feel uprooted, when you feel unstable, when you wonder about the goodness of God and his presence with you. And we see how those, those layers of stress begin to express themselves in the life of an individual family living in the land at that time. Look at verse uh, 1, second half of verse 1, on through the end of verse 2. It says, So at this time a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife's name was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. And they went to Moab and lived there. So we have this, this family under great distress. And in the course of these few verses, they become a family that is fleeing that distress. They become a family that is uprooted. And many commentators, many rabbis and, and pastors and, and people who have taught this book throughout the centuries have paid careful attention to the names listed here in the first few verses. How the names of, of this family almost tell a story in and of themselves. The first two names, the, the mother and father in this family, are Elimelech and Naomi. And the name Elimelech means, my God is king. My God is king. Eli meaning God, Melech meaning king. And his wife Naomi, her name means something like, like pleasantness or kindness, and likely with reference to, to Yahweh, to God, the pleasantness or the kindness of God. So we have, my God is king and the, the kindness of my God, as, as this husband and wife who are joined together. And you can imagine if, if two individuals bore those kinds of names, they were probably given during a time of optimism, a time where there was hope and stability and a, and a sense of, of goodness about Israel and its future. But by the time it, it comes to the next generation, by the time Elimelech and Naomi have their own children and it comes time to give their children names, Right, they are named Malon and Kilion, which mean sick and frail. Right, that probably says something about maybe the condition of the health of these two children, born during the time of political distress, born during the time of famine. But I think it also says something about their outlook. Right? It, it, it communicates the, the hope that they may have once had giving way to despair. And it's that, that loss of hope that also uproots them from their place in the land. Right? It becomes more difficult for them to stay put in the place that God had promised them and, and the generations before them. And so they decide to go to Moab. And I don't know if you've ever had to make a major move as a child or maybe as an adult. 
Right? But this decision to travel with their family is, is fraught with challenges and with new stressors for Elimelech and Naomi. First of all, right, they would have had to leave behind their inheritance, their, their land, whatever homes they, they had inherited there in Bethlehem. And ironically, even that name Bethlehem right, means a, a house of bread, a house of grain, a house of provision, but, but has become a, a house of famine to them. And so they have to leave it behind. And they travel 50 miles to the east. They would have probably gone up and over the Jordan River Valley, across to the other side of the Dead Sea, into to modern-day Jordan. And even though that, that journey would have only probably taken the better part of a week on foot, there is a, a significant cultural and social gap between these two places. There was a, a long and contentious history between uh, the people of Judah and the people of Moab. And if you dig back into the family history, so to speak, you go back into Judges, go back into Exodus and Deuteronomy, you'll first see that when the, the people of God were passing through the wilderness and about to enter the Promised Land, that the Moabites refused to give them uh, permission to travel through the land. They refused to give them water and food during that time of distress. And so that, that bred a, a, a contentious relationship the, the Moabites cursed the Israelites, and then in turn, when Moses was calling the, the covenant people to enter the land, Moses excludes the, the Moabites from, from being part of uh, the covenant people, the tribes of Israel. So there's this, this division, and then you go into the start of the book of Judges, and we see at the very beginning of that book, Eglon, the king of Moab, actually comes into Israel, and he conquers most of the land um, and he rules over the Israelites for 20 years with great oppression and violence. And so Elimelech and, and Naomi, you know, they're probably a few generations removed from all of that. But they're leaving behind their home and they're coming to this place to find something to eat and to find a new lives, to find new lives. But they are they're very much foreigners. Right? They're very much people that would have been viewed with some hostility in the land of Moab. And once they arrive and settle there, we see that their story becomes even more fraught with difficulty. Look at verses 3, 4, and 5. It says, Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died there in Moab, and she was left with only her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other named Ruth. And after they had lived there about ten years, both Malon and Kilion also died. And so Naomi was left without her two sons and left without her husband. By the time we reach the end of verse 5, Naomi's family has essentially reached a, a terminal point. Right? She is alone in this family. And if we, if we kind of stop to think about all that takes place in these three verses, right? Naomi not only loses her, her partner and the husband that she had shared her life with, but she also loses her chief source of, of income and protection in the ancient world. And so after, after Elimelech dies, 
Naomi really only has her two sons left to depend on, to protect her, to support her. And so for a brief period of time, for about a decade, maybe there's some hope that, that these two sons can, can make things different. And they managed to find Moabite families to marry into. But verse 4 tells us that for those 10 years, right, there is further disappointment. There are no offspring, no children born in that marriage. And then eventually, uh, the sickness and the frailty of these two sons catches up with them. And both of Naomi's sons are also lost in death. And so Naomi is left, again, as the last member of her family. She's left as a refugee, right, living away from her homeland. She's left with her grief. She is a widow. And she has no means to sustain herself. And I think it's, it's fair to say you couldn't imagine a more difficult, a more vulnerable position to be in at that time. And yet, strangely, as we've sketched out these five verses of, of moving from a time of anarchy descending into to grief and loss and death and loneliness and flight from their home country, right, this is how the book of Ruth begins. Right? Why, why does this, this book meant to bridge these two significant periods in Israel's history? Why, why does this book that's going to anticipate God doing something new and bringing about a new kingdom of, of flourishing in a, in a time of great stability and progress in Israel, why does it begin with a story about Naomi? Why does it begin with a woman who is just about as far removed from a sense of God's blessing and goodness, from a sense of, of belonging to God's family, as we could possibly imagine. Why didn't the, the authors of Scripture, why didn't they look for a more uplifting beginning? Why didn't they look for a family who, who had done everything right? Why didn't they look for a family who received only blessing after blessing from God? Why did they at least take pains to avoid a family that intermingles and intermarries with with foreign people who were despised and who despised them. Right? I suppose if they looked hard enough, they could have found an alternate story, someone else's story to tell in this time. But that's not the story that God has chosen to be part of Scripture. It's not the story God has chosen to place in the canon here. And I think that's because the way... God wants us to think about how he forms a people. How he will even form a kingdom of people is drastically different than our own. And I think we're given these first five verses which are discouraging and unsettling to prepare us because God is going to demonstrate that he will use highly unorthodox means to rebuild his people, to restore a sense of belonging. God's going to reach out and he is going to take a family line that is at the verge, at the last point before extinction. 
And he's going to, to begin at that lowest point to go to work, reversing the, the curses of desertion, the curses of, of sickness, the curses of, of discrimination and enmity between people. And he's going to go to work in the story of Naomi, a woman left without sons, without her husband, left only in the company of a young Moabite widow named Ruth. And if God can make a story of belonging out of these two women, if God can, can pull together a, a new concept of, of what it means to be his people and to belong to a family from this story, then God can also meet us where we are, no matter what our family stories have been, no matter how unorthodox or non-traditional or, or full of distress or brokenness they might have been. These are the kinds of stories God chooses to go to work in. And so because we're, we're leaving off here in verse 5, we don't get the, the first glimpses of hope until next week. I want us to just recite the end of Psalm 33 this morning, and to keep in mind this promise of, of who God is and how he works. And we'll finish with this as, as a prayer, a responsive reading. I'll read what's um, at the beginning there, and if you would read what's underlined, that would be great. This is the, the conclusion of Psalm 33. The psalmist says, The eyes of the Lord are always on those who fear him, on those whose hope is in his unfailing love. He will deliver them from death. He will keep them alive, even in famine. In him our hearts rejoice, for we trust in his holy name. Lord Jesus, we pray that we would see your unfailing love worked out in this story of Ruth over these summer months. We pray that we would also see and hope and trust in the work of your unfailing love here in this place. Lord, reorient us, reconfigure us so that we might be a people who can give testimony to the kind of God you are. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.